Summer is here and that means it's time for extra family read-alouds, beach reads, and earning that free pizza from the local library. The Cersei Press is here to help with four new titles. First, we're excited to offer you our first fully illustrated children's book. Learn the Latin alphabet, common verbs associated with speaking, and the Latin names of 24 nouns in ABK Latine. In this beautifully illustrated alphabet book, each letter of the Latin alphabet is paired with an animal that makes the same sound. So even parents with no knowledge of Latin can easily read this book with their children. While your young ones are learning Latin, curl up with a cup of tea and enter King Arthur's court with your older children in Legends of the Round Table. This carefully curated collection of Arthurian legends were chosen for their celebration of chivalry, honor, nobility, and beauty. In addition to the tales, you will find discussion questions for further contemplation. And when you get some time to yourself, contemplate the true, good, and beautiful with Josh Gibbs in his new book, Love What Lasts. In today's world, almost nothing lasts. Books and films that are wildly popular one year are forgotten by the next. Some things do last, though. 200 years later, we are still listening to Beethoven. 1,600 years later, we are still reading Augustine. In Love What Lasts, Joshua Gibbs offers readers a wide-angle view of contemporary culture, explains how we got here, and invites readers to reconsider the role which old books, old music, and old films might play in their lives and the lives of their families. And for those parents and teachers who just can't spend their summer reading without prepping for the fall, the Circe Press is excited to announce a new book, by C. Scott and David V. Hicks. The tyrant Julius Caesar, as told by Plutarch and Shakespeare. The Hicks brothers bring their experience translating and annotating Plutarch and the Statesman and the Lawgivers for this unique look at one of history's most divisive and interesting figures. Starting with their highly readable translation of Plutarch's Life of Caesar and the wealth of insights provided by their thorough annotations, maps, and diagrams. The Hicks then turn their attention to Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. This annotated text of the play is unique comparing Shakespeare's rendition of Caesar's life to Plutarch's, noting his sources, and considering the Elizabethan story in light of its classical origins. Not confined to literature, history, linguistics, or philosophy, this work bridges all these disciplines, making it an exemplary example of the study of humanities. ABK Latine, Love at Last, and Legends of the Roundtable are available for purchase now. The tyrant is pre-order, meaning you can claim yours at a discounted price for a limited time. To get these books and many more Cersei titles, head to CerseiInstitute.org backslash books. Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined once again by Patty and Alec Bianco. And we are wrapping up our discussion on Herodotus Book One. So um, I think the only the only problem with that is we all felt like we wanted to keep reading after Book One, but... Uh, but alas, we'll have to return to it later. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing well. <laughs> Sad that this is our last one. Yeah, yeah. It is our last one, and it'll be the last episode for a little while. We're all, we'll all take a break um, here in July with the Cersei Conference and apprenticeships and all the online classes starting. It's a, it's a busy time of year around the Cersei offices, so we'll take a little bit of a break and then come back in August. Well, uh let's just kind of dive right in we finished reading book one last time um kind of wrapped up everything that was going on with croesus and, and cyrus um and kind of prepped us as we said going into uh book two seems to deal a lot with the egyptians so that's what's up next for anybody who wants to keep reading but uh we wanted to kind of revisit take some questions and revisit some things uh over the over the first book one of the things that we talked about over the course of a couple of the episodes uh was um Chris's question and answer with with Solon and that question about happiness uh and who's the happiest i guess uh, 
man in the world. So we have a question on that. You know, uh, we talked about Solon's question and happiness. How do we see it play out in book one? Uh, and what do we think Herodotus has to say about it with the details uh, he gives us? Yeah, I think it might be worth it to revisit what he says. So this is, I'm using the Penguin Classics, so this is pages 15 and 16. But he's coming to Croesus, whom we remember a lot of this book is about. And, oh, I guess 14, where it starts. But Solon says... I know God is envious, page 15, Croesus, I know God is envious of human prosperity and likes to trouble us, and you question me about the lot of man. <clears throat> then he goes on to talk about how many years they have to live. Croesus, you seem to be very rich, and you rule in numerous people, but the question you ask me I will not answer until I know that you have died happily. Great wealth can make a man no happier than moderate means, unless he has the luck to continue in prosperity to the end. Many very rich men have been unfortunate, and many with a modest competence have had good luck. The former are better off than the latter in two respects only, whereas the poor but lucky man has the advantage in many ways. For though the rich have the means to satisfy their appetites and to bear calamities, and the poor have not, the poor, if they are lucky, are more likely to keep clear of trouble, and will have beside the blessings of a sound body, health, freedom from trouble, fine children, and good looks." Nobody, of course, can have all these advantages any more than a country can produce everything it needs. Whatever it has, it is bound to lack something. The best country is the one which has the most. It is the same with people. No man is ever self-sufficient. There is sure to be something missing. But whoever has the greatest number of the good things I have mentioned and keeps them to the end and dies a peaceful death, that man, Croesus, deserves, in my opinion, to be called happy. Look to the end, no matter what it is you are considering. Often God. Often enough, God gives a man a glimpse of happiness and then utterly ruins him. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question to think about whether Croesus, well, one, I think whether Croesus was happy. Because we know, I don't think we're, we're not told that his death um, in book one. Right. But we know his fate <laughs> in book one. So, which makes me wonder, was he happy? Do we know? Mm. It depends on how literally we want to take soul on here, I suppose, about to know whether he dies. But even if we just presume that he dies in the captivity of the Persian kings, it's fat. I'm, I'm struck again just reading it now. Solon says... Many very rich men have been unfortunate, and many with a modest competence have had good luck. You know, the poor but lucky man has the advantage in many ways. And I'm kind of wondering if Croesus takes on the role of the poor but lucky man who gets hmm. to live. Interesting. Or if he was the rich but unfortunate man who God utterly ruined by making him a slave to the Persians. I don't know. That is interesting because, like you said, we don't we haven't seen the end of his story yet. But if we're just looking at book one, he certainly appears to be that that rich but unlucky man, right? You know, kind of mid midway through this first book. Um, but the last thing we see of him in the book is he's actually sent back by Cyrus with his sons to the court as basically 
a pretty high court advisor, right, to the son. He says, listen to what this man has to tell you, basically, and, to tr- and treat him well, let him live in the palace. Uh, there's almost a sense of he, he'll be enjoying the 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 fruits of being in the palace, you know, the palace life, essentially, without the burden of, <laughs> of ruling um, as just an advisor. And so maybe he is poor but fortunate in that sense. We, we kind of had this come up when we, I was talking with Andrea and Matt about um, when we did the uh, Oedipus cycle that, um, oh, who's the one who usurps from Oedipus and the sons? I'm blanking out now, the brother-in-law. But he at the time was living, when the story starts, he's basically living this kind of life, like a pretty fortunate, blessed life as the, in the, in the court. But with none of the like actual responsibility to, to run things. Um, and he kind of loses that. And in the end is, is a pretty miserable person himself too, but he's, he ends up miserable where this one he's, he's now receiving this kind of life, which is interesting. Yeah. I'm, I don't remember the, the exact lives of every single King that's mentioned in book one. Some of them, he kind of goes through pretty quick, but it seems like, a lot of the other kings, you know, live some sort of villainous life, take over control, and then do something bad. Uh, you know, either misinterpret the oracles or, mm-hmm. you know, attack people when they shouldn't, whatever, and then they, you know, die. You know, a lot of ways, it seems like Solon is saying that's an unhappy life. They yeah. may have had wealth and power, but they lost it all. And Croesus, I, I want to be careful to uh, import too much of my own views, but Croesus, it seems like he is on that trajectory, and in some ways does. I mean, he's at, he remember he was put at the stake mm-hmm. and was being burned to death when he repents or displays some sort of act of humility, and then Apollo frees him. Yeah with the rain and then of course the king which is uh, cyrus he lets him alive and like you said brandon at the end at least at the end of this story book one he's given almost this sort of like joseph or mm, Moses that's a good analogy yeah yeah you know he's 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 second to, to pharaoh alone kind of a thing um and it's almost like his his humility at his defeat was a sort of turnaround for the fact that he was a, going to meet a tragic end. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I suppose I posit that he fits Solon's definition of happiness. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't really know exactly if he, how he dies, but it seems at least so far, I think that he, he fits Solon's happiness because he's able to turn his life around hmm. no longer chasing after power and wealth and material things. And he turns his eyes to, to the gods in his, on his, at his deathbed. Yeah. And it's, it's more repentant than it is lamenting too. the way when he turns his eyes to the gods. Interesting. When I was, Reading back through this, I thought it was interesting that Solon had two examples, right? Because he tells him who 
the man he thinks is the most happy and prosperous, tell us, right, who has famous city, good and noble children, well off. And then, you know, he fights nobly and is buried in the public square. But then there was that the two sons, Cle- Clebus and Biton, um, who he says they just had enough to survive, right? They weren't necessarily rich, but they were physically fit, <laughs> athletic, and they could, you know, they sacrificed for their mother, right? They they took her because um, she didn't have a wagon. I forget where they were going now. But then the gods, you know, took their lives, which they said was the best they could do. And um, then statues were made of them. So for, there seems to be two views, like maybe Croesus started out similar to, to Tellus, but then ended up more like the brothers and that he was willing to sacrifice the wealth and the power of, you know, um, he was willing, willing to be submitted. I think in here, uh, Herodotus says he's the first to subjugate, right? Before that, people were free. So now he's willing to be subjugated himself, and then he he can end a more fortunate fortunate man. Yeah, that's a really good point about being willing or being subjugated himself. Yeah, Herodotus doesn't add a lot of commentary, but every once in a while he will. Um, but I don't think he actually he adds any commentary about Croesus and whether he was good or bad or right or wrong. Yeah, it, it leaves that question open to because we haven't seen, actually seen the end of his life yet. If we're going to get mm-hmm. more more resolution on that in later books, because it is something to look forward to uh, as we as we come back to Herodotus down the road, or as the listeners, uh, if they can keep going, maybe we'll get a better picture of that. Uh, the other big player that we have in this book though and we do see his end is cyrus so i wonder if either of you have any thoughts on kind of viewing him through solon's uh you know standards or grid however you want to say that Mm -hmm. yeah how does cyrus die again he's killed in battle um right and that's the one where his son speaks right yeah to kill cyrus yeah his new son yeah i think that was croesus remember croesus had two sons Attis oh. and the oh, dumb that's... one and then the dumb one spoke but it wasn't until after the that prophecy was fulfilled by the oracle right that his son would speak You're and right. then his empire would end and that's cyrus took him over then it's the queen that gets the revenge on cyrus um yes cuts his head off but um, yeah. she said she was gonna yeah satiate his bloodlust i think he just goes down in battle like yeah, on the battlefield um which in one sense right is a good end right if you're comparing him to the two brothers who were doing something honorable and they died doing something honorable he goes down fighting although maybe he shouldn't have gone into that battle i trying to remember if he had some oracle uh on that too we can maybe revisit that in a minute we have some questions about the oracles later but so he ends 
that way in battle, which is honorable, I guess. Uh, but he, um, and he's able to sp- have, have his son at least sent back to the court and spared to continue the empire, possibly, th- theoretically. So, yeah. Mm. So there's an argument think- to be made that he ends well, right? But probably there's an argument to go the other way, too. Well, his beginning's interesting, right? Because he's he's the one that is has more of like the Moses hiding the baby kind of beginning, where you know, his grandfather wants him killed, and then the shepherd takes care of him. You know, they do the whole trick because the mom had a stillborn, and Harpagus was supposed to kill him, and he was not killed, and so he's found as as a child to have all these special abilities right this kingliness about him but as as far as i know he grew up persian right he's the he's the king of persia i was trying to remember that Mm -hmm. croesus is king of lydia and he's king of persia and the persians have different customs than the lydians right so it, it talked in there about you know they don't erect erect statues, so maybe they have the same kind of like you get glory from fighting in battle, but it's foolish to have temples and statues, and you know they they even sacrificed to their gods a little bit differently. So I wonder if having that different custom made him a different kind of king. But in the end, I think he still um, misconstrued the oracle, like you said, <laughs> and then ended up, you know, having this this bloodlust that I I saw all the kings have. Like that, they just weren't content with what they had. They just kept moving forward and and trying to gain more and more and more wealth, accumulate more and more, and then that ultimately became their end. Right. It wasn't Cyrus the one. I might be confusing with another one, but he was the one whose his predecessor was content with just those few lands and didn't spread the Persian Empire any farther. But then Cyrus was the one who wanted to take it farther. Or maybe it was his two beforehand, something like that. I think it was, is that the judge you're thinking of that um, he stayed within his walls? Yes, that's right. Yeah. But they were... A couple before Cyrus, maybe. Something like that. Yeah, I think so. Well, either way, yeah. I wonder if he was the um, a, a better example of not being, not having that bloodlust and not having that constant warmongering side to him. But then the ones after him, including Cyrus, continued to seek after more land, conquering all of Babylon. and. Well, that was interesting. When I looked back through, I I saw a sentence that said the Babylonian Babylonians noted how Cyrus was not peaceful, and so they prepared for the siege. And so he's you know fighting all around them, and then they see that he's not a a peaceful ruler. Um, obviously, it didn't help them because <laughs> he ended up um, being able to outsmart them and taking them by surprise but yeah that is curious yeah i was just about to read that line uh 
they, the Babylonians, already knew of mine says of Cyrus's restless ambition and had watched his successive acts of aggression against one nation after another. So he was certainly a I think it's really interesting. So right before he dies, remember, he receives a dream. And uh Herodotus has says this. He seems to have a strange dream of his son with a pair of wings which casts a shadow upon Asia and elsewhere. And Darius is somehow in that. I'm not sure. I can't, I'm not quite following what he's saying here. But anyways, Herodotus says, though Cyrus was so sure of Darius's treachery, the real meaning of the dream was not as he supposed. Rather, it was sent by God to warn him of his death then and there, uh, the ultimate succession of Darius to the throne. So it sounds like he's saying, Cyrus interprets the dream as Darius's treachery, that it's supposed to be revealing that Darius is untrustworthy. But that what it sounds like what Herodotus is saying is no, actually, this was a uh, an omen of the fact that you're going to die. And Darius just happens to be the one who succeeds you, not that he's the one committing some act of treachery. And it's really interesting because indeed it wasn't treachery or anything like that it was his own bloodlust he would wouldn't let the queen the masagete pass um freely and instead decided to stay and fight them and he kills her son i did think it was interesting that it seemed like croesus and the kings before cyrus depended more on the oracles and then there was this shift of more He's using Croesus as an advisor, and then there's more of these dreams starting to appear rather than them going to the oracle for advice. Although I, my question was, you know, the oracle give them would give them sayings, verse, and then they would misinterpret it just like the dream. So who can who can interpret? what yeah. what the oracles say and <laughs> what these dreams mean that's interesting that you I, I hadn't thought about that that uh um but you're early early on we're talking about primarily kind of macedonian greek whatever you want to call them kings right and leaders that are going to this oracle which is a greek oracle i mean that's uh connected to the greek gods let's say the pantheon greek pantheon and then you get the persians who would they're coming in from the outside of that, really. And as you're saying that, it strikes me that that kind of dream and dream interpretation is more what we get like in the Old Testament with Egypt, right? So it's maybe it's more of a farther east kind of concept, right? That 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 in the ancient world, I don't know. I mean, I'm completely speculating, but I'm reminded of you know Joseph uh, interpreting the dreams, like uh, you know Alec mentioned him earlier, so maybe that's why he was in front of mine, but more so than like references to oracles in the old testament you know what i mean yeah so and that's interesting uh juxtaposition there is the different cultures start to overtake one another practices shifting um well we have some questions that are kind of related to some of that stuff so let's let's jump in real quick um so i got two that were similar but one's more specifically connected to the oracles and then one more about fortune um 
Uh, well, let's let's since since we already are brought up the oracles, let's let's talk about that one first. Uh, it says, "What is the place of the oracles in Herodotus reporting? They are visited often, and different figures respond to them differently. How does Herodotus treat prophecy and fate compared to other ancients or ancient texts?" I think I noted um, the kingship. Right, he's talking about this line of kings, and that they're sanctioned by the oracle and so these kings came about and then there was uh, way at the beginning right we had ken kendales who ended up getting killed right <laughs> we have gaiji's take over so his father son from there and then you have lydian rule but then you know croesus he he goes to the oracles but he tests the oracles Right uh, to see who is the most most trustworthy, and I don't think Herodotus ever says whether that's right or wrong. But I just thought it was interesting. That, like you know, Croesus decided to test to see who's the the true one, but then somebody else later on tests the oracle, and it doesn't turn out so well for him. <laughs> like Apollo gets very angry, <laughs> so I. You know, I'm not sure uh, which is the best course of action. You know, we we had them say even that, you know, Croesus misinterpreted. He should have went back and questioned. And so this guy, you know, in comparison, distrust goes back and questions the oracle, and um, you know, gets a different answer. But uh, I think it was on page. I had it written down, page 51. It says, fated destiny is impossible to avoid even for a god. And that was in response to Croesus getting angry at them, right? Thinking that they're the ones that caused him to be captured, but it was really his own wrongdoing and he had to confess. So he couldn't couldn't avoid fate. Maybe Herodotus believes in in fate, but I'm not sure exactly. Maybe you guys know better what how the ancients interpreted fate. No idea. Well, I'm. I like the question because I feel like this is the second time now in the last few months we've read something that I think challenged my preconceived notion of the ancient world and fates and oracles and you know, like um, I think my view from you know the caricature i've been given of ancient greek mythology and etc growing up is that like once there's a fate it's on it's like it's certain right um uh in a way that's that like is man's life is really more control is completely controlled by the gods and fate and it doesn't matter what they do but i even with that line you just read with even the gods can't escape fate. It still seems vague to me if it's if it's like because what they told him was if you go to battle a major a a, a great empire will fall right. That's what they told him. So that is inescapable if you go to battle right. It's inescapable that a great empire will fall, which is actually kind of common sense right. There's two of them fighting, so one of them's got to lose. I mean, I guess they wouldn't have to fall. What they could just one could lose and just retreat and keep their empire, I guess. But, but, but he hears it like, 
Well, he hears what he wants to hear. The other one will fall. But then he blames fate for it happening instead of, like you said, accepting his responsibility for making the choice to go into battle with the Persians. And so I don't know. I don't know if the fates are saying, if you go into battle, this will happen. But if you didn't go into battle, it wouldn't happen. <laughs> like that's so it's not that fated. It's not that or, or it's not that um, necessary that it will happen. That's their outcome. And it's the second time we've been reading something where I'm screaming all the time, like, ask a second question. <laughs> ask it. And then we get that in this. And then we didn't get that in the one. I think it was back again with, with the um, Oedipus cycle. Like, ask a second question for this prophecy. Like, uh, sometimes it seems like things could be avoided. Um, but maybe that's reading, reading back into it. But in this case, we get some where someone goes back and says, like he challenges the Oracle. I can't remember which character it was now. It's later on. It's one of these other um, heads of a city state. And it, they give him more of an answer, right? Um, that then he has more information to make a better decision based on. So I find that really interesting. I find his treatment of this with the Oracle is interesting. There's so many times they go to the oracles just in this first book. So I don't know. I'd be curious to see how that plays out, especially now that you brought up Patty, that some of these other people groups, that's not how they operate when it comes to, to prophecy and signs. It's not necessarily through an oracle. It's maybe more dream oriented. So I wonder if we're going to see a continued clashing of these, of these cultural norms as you go on through the, through this, uh, through the whole book. And I think probably the Oracle's messages were always kind of am ambiguous on pur purpose. <laughs> you know, it seemed like the Magi, anyway, they misinterpreted. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they were less correct than <laughs> the Oracle's with some of the things that they had said. And But I, I was noticing in one case, the Spartans, that when they went to an or Oracle, they had the one guy like, like Horde, Corgus or something like that, where um, I thought it was interesting. Like they, they're like, "Are you a god?" <laughs> uh, it's, just, it's just interesting. But he helped turn their city around. Like their government wasn't doing well. And then they started flourishing after consulting with the oracle. But then it said they were no longer um, content with peace, and so they went. You know, mm. after they were stopped being content and started warring on other people, then they then they got in trouble, had their downfall. So I, I, I don't know. I'm still looking at the patterns between all of them, but it seems like when when Croesus wasn't content with his happiness, he wasn't happy with what Solon said. You know, then his course went off. When Cyrus wasn't content to stay, you know, with whoever he had conquered. He'd reached out so far, but he, he met a queen that, <laughs> you know, she took his head. So is that how you end your life? I mean, is Solon right? Like you can have a great life all the way up to the very end. Then your head's in a sack of blood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's both Maybe like how you're remembered. That's both like encouraging and incredibly like scary. <laughs> I want to end well. If I can end well, then I'll be okay. But the odds of, you know, just ending on a bad day would be, you know, a little, a little threatening. So.
Uh, I had yeah. a go ahead. Oh, please. No, no, no I don't change the subject. What were you gonna say? Well, I was gonna say I don't know. It's kind of hard for me as a modern to understand why ending is the right way is so important to them. And even I think he mentions it, you know, how you treat the dead. Like he talks about the one people who eat their elderly and that that's what you want. You want to live long enough to be eaten <laughs> and not die, die of disease or something and have to be burned. And, you know, obviously we don't know exactly what all the different Greeks have for their death, but Solon talks about the virtue of Tellus and those other guys he mentions in the way that they die. And I don't know. It's so to, I guess to answer your question, is Solon right? I don't I don't know. I want to say yes, but I don't understand it because you know, we live too long now. Mm-hmm. And you know, live with crippling diseases and we have to get Right. metal hip replacements and you know whatever we can be attached to a computer and live for however long we need to live <laughs> until you know whatever upload so, our consciousness right and yeah i mean i don't mean to you know mock or give you know ridicule or give anybody a hard time but at the same time yeah like our young men aren't dying in battle and that's the way to go Right. You know, or we're not living long enough to have our children eat us, uh, thankfully. But but we don't really have any other sort of ritual. Because, you know, it's almost like, and, and I, maybe this is what Solon's sort of getting at. I think this is what he's getting at. I can be wrong. But I think what he's saying is, I think what he was telling Croesus was not necessarily make sure you have some sort of honorable death in the sense that the death itself was was, was honorable, but rather make sure that your life was on a trajectory so that when you're when you die, it would become honorable by the life that you lived. And he says, keep the end in mind. That's one of the last things he says to Croesus. And the guys that he's describing um, lived these sort of honorable lives, either by being content with what they had or by performing acts for the gods um, and their family. And I think that seems to comport with a sort of Christian view, which is that we don't know necessarily how we're going to die you know, ripe old age on a deathbed peacefully, or it could be a car accident, you know, it could be anything. But if we'd lived a life of virtue up to that point, we've kept our end in mind. And I don't know, maybe I'm, again, importing too much into what Solon's saying, but I feel like it makes sense of of the text and of the stories. But it also seems to be a, a kind of proto-Christian view of the way we're supposed to live our lives, like keeping the end in mind, i.e. being looking forward to heaven and not hell, and therefore living accordingly, so that, you know, like those billboards, do you know where you're going to go when you die? (laughs) (laughs) 
but right. you know it's it's a good question and you know we don't know the answer nothing like a good uh, turner turner burn billboard get you thinking yeah exactly exactly we don't know and i think it's true i mean there's some sort of whatever the fates are involved it's almost impossible to really truly know um and even these guys you know cyrus receives this vision of his death but he misinterprets it according to his own vice that's what causes him to misinterpret it hmm. but it's possible that if he had had sort of the humility that Croesus has when he's about to die that he could have turned it right so i think the juxtaposition between cyrus and Croesus is really interesting because one is they're both dying or they're both in the face of death one by fire one by this queen uh, and one chooses humility and to subjugate himself and the other chooses to look for treachery and then fight anyways so i think it's interesting that croesus also tends to have a mind to look toward the future right after he's under Cyrus and, and as an advisor, immediately he's like, Why are you sacking your city? Yeah, mm. <laughs> this is your city now. Right, right. And you're, <laughs> you're just destroying it. And and he gives him such good advice. Like he had so many misinterpretations of the oracles. And then he's such a good advisor for Cyrus. And then obviously Cyrus doesn't take his advice in the end. But you know, having that like you said, looking toward the end, I think that's, we can see creases come up, up, up on top because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm really, I'm really curious now, like if this whole deal with, with that we get from Solon, this kind of uh, monologue we get from about this is really something that's, that is kind of rein, reinvestigated with leader after leader through, through the rest of the histories with Herodotus. I'd be really curious to see how that plays out in the next several books. So interesting, definitely a good framing question for the study of it. That actually leads me to another question I had. I, I was just curious. Um, so I was thinking about it a little bit myself and I wasn't sure how I'd answer. This was, uh, I'm thinking about like for our audience, how would you go, how would you approach teaching this book? Um, you know, I kind of feel like I'm starting to get a good, a good feel for how I would approach, you know, philosophy, especially ancient philosophy and things that are narrative fiction, right. Or, or at least epic poems, if it, you know, you can debate whether it's fiction or, or not fiction, but, um, where this is like a, but this is like the first history, right? Like the first kind of, you know, as we, as we think of it, a history in the, in the canon, um, do you have any thoughts about how you would approach it if you were teaching with students and what maybe like, what age range you would you would kind of try and tackle it with? I believe um one of my teachers in the online academy actually did teach Herodotus. Although oh, nice. I'm not sure exactly how she came came about doing it, but the version I have, the landmark, I love that it has the maps in there mm. so that I can see the different places. So combining that with like the geography like if we could 
you know, focus where they usually have a triangle where the people are focused. And then we could look at the different peoples, the cities, the customs, the cultures as we read that section. I definitely would slow it down some. Um, I have a friend who's reading this for college and she's having to read big chunks at a time. And there's just so many details and it seems like it'd be too hard to grasp all that Herodotus Herodotus. <laughs> I was teasing Matt. I was calling it Herodotus. He's like, oh, is that Socrates' cousin? And <laughs> I meant Herodotus. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah. Anyway, that, that might be, at least if I were teaching it, that, that approach, more geography. I would certainly, yeah, I like that. Um, and going slow. Honestly, doing... Um, um what's it called like sections instead of whole books mm -hmm. at a time um kind of highlight it i probably wouldn't start any earlier than middle school um just to you know make sure there's some semblance of readability mm -hmm. and the topics are a little gruesome uh but that in that with all that in mind I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I, mean, I was just talking with a a friend about this the other day because um, I'm also reading Plutarch's Life of Solon on my own. And Plutarch writes his histories very similarly to Herodotus. Obviously, Thucydides writes uh, fairly similarly, or basically the same. And then there are a few other historians of um, classical literature. And comparing the sort of classical approach to history to the modern approach is really interesting because the modern approach seems to be focused on and emphasizes uh, what we would call accuracy. So if there isn't a precise sort of proof and for them that means some sort of like archaeological proof or you know whatever um multiple source witnesses then then the 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 event or whatever is so to speak guilty until proven innocent mm. right you do not believe anything until you've proven it empirically and with as much evidence as possible. And the classical approach, not to say it doesn't care about accuracy. I mean, Herodotus throughout book one says, I'm going to tell you this story because it seems the most plausible to me. Right. But he's the way he approaches it is I mean, he says at one point, I'm going to use the Persians version of this story because they are the ones who are less likely to boast. When they tell their stories, they huh. seem to be more fair. And that's a, a more interesting way of approaching history where you sort of assume it's true, but you're looking at integrity and honesty to determine how it sort of gets transmitted through. Yeah. Through time. Um, that's interesting because he assumes that the event is true, right? Mm -hmm. that the there's a general account that's true uh that's his starting point 
but then he does have the discernment of whose version of the story he's going to like get put his weight behind. Like they'll say this, this is, but I think it's probably this, these guys, cause they're like, you're saying they're more honest about this or whatever. Right. Right. That is fascinating. Well, and it's so, so it's interesting. I, I, I don't want to be too, you know, put too fine a point on it, but there seems to be an overall different ethos when it comes to approaching history, classically speaking versus mo- um, from a modern perspective and where, I mean, we have to remember that these people are storytellers mm-hmm. way more than we are. I mean, we do tell stories, obviously, but with the rise of the internet and the rise of the printing press and and anything, there's so, and all of this technology, I mean, we have so much more rapid ability to transmit information and to sort of, quote unquote, proof check things that... I wonder if over the last 500, 600, 800 years, we've kind of created a more cynical perspective on the stories that are passed down Mm. in a way that, I mean, we have a a coworker who he'll complain every once in a while about people uh, Google checking him. (laughs) So, you know, we're having a conversation. And then he'll say something and then somebody else will pull it up on Google and check back, check it to make sure it's correct or not. Right. I remember him telling me about how annoyed he is when that happens. Uh, But, you know, that's a symptom, I think, of this sort of cynical problem. Like we can't, we can't take these stories and just sort of receive them in any sort of meaningful way. And like you said, Brandon, Herodotus assumes these things are real. He's just trying to find the most accurate account, which is even very different than the modern. I mean, the modern approach to it is that didn't happen or those places aren't real. I mean, to this day, people are still trying to say that Jesus wasn't a real person, even though there's been literal archaeological, archaeological evidence for it and numerous accounts. So we just have such a, uh, a, a, yeah, a cynical mind to these things. So I think that <laughs> leads me to two points when you're, when you're talking about teaching these histories is one, just, just do it, read them, read Herodotus, read Thucydides, read Plutarch, read Bede, because mm-hmm. the way they approach history is so much, it's so refreshing compared to the mind of, of what we're in now and our inability to, um, just receive stories as they are yeah. like we read the iliad and we don't even we just assume it's all false and it's all fiction even though homer may have been embellishing certain things it's fairly likely troy was a real place it's fairly likely there was a large battle there it's fairly yeah. likely that many of these people were real figures Herodotus is true it that way right like he mm-hmm. references it in his book one and yeah it's interesting. You, you mentioned Bede, and I remember. I think it was. I think it was an interview they did. Brian Phillips, that one, he was here, um, was interviewing Wes Callahan one time, and was talking was talking about this exact thing. Like when he teaches his classes online, he has students, you know, and they're reading Bede, and Bede, you know, ecclesiastical history of the church, right? I mean, of the, of the English people. I mean, I guess. And there's a ton of miracles in there, right? Like you know, you're reading about St. Patrick and, and he says, it never fails. It's like, they're like, yeah, but well, 
what do you do with what do you do about all the miracles? Like they're just like they can't believe them, right? And Wes was like, just to, like, yeah, what are you gonna do about the miracles? Like just leave me, you have to deal with it. Like it's like I'm I'm taking B for what he says, right? And you just gotta deal with it. You gotta figure out how to deal with it. And I think um that's so foreign to us, right? Like we we're we're so programmed to question anything like remotely that seems uh, supernatural or or fantastical in any way. Um work we we want to question oh there weren't that many they defeated they didn't really defeat five thousand men it was probably like 500 men you know we, we just want to downplay anything right these great feats and so um that's that's good advice i think and patty i really like the idea of kind of mapping it as you go because it's it helps so much to like have this understanding of what the ancient world like to see it to see where things are moving and like what's what's happening um and these places kind of falling under different rule over time, you know, and how that impacts the whole the whole thing. So something else I observed just going back and it kind of goes along with what Alex saying with this story of whether it's, whether it's factual or not, I was looking at the, you know, how this all got started with them taking the women and their names, you know, you have IO, you have Europa, Medea, and they're just variations of the locations like Europe, Europa, Medea, it's just a different spelling, Helen, Helene's. Mm. And it's like, well, are they not creative? And they just decided <laughs> name them that. But I almost wonder if it it's more than that, right? Is it a is it a metaphor for those people, right? They're they're taking something from from those people. They're, you know, this is their in a way that, you know, their bride, right, that they're taking. And so these kings are going back and, and you know, having to rise up to take their bride back. So even, I'm, I'm sure they're, they were real people, but they may stand, you know, be a metaphor for something else as well. Yeah, they almost become archetypes, right, in, even within the ancient world. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say one other thing, too. Um, reading these stories in class or, or teaching them however you want to do it um to sort of lean into the way that the author is telling these stories he's asking us in many ways to evaluate them which is something that we sort of see teach all the time right that's the whole persuasive essay the foundation of it is the mm -hmm. should question and and because the should question allows you to understand the logocentrical ideas of the story and not just the sort of um, list of facts that may or may not fall out of it. So it's beautiful. I think this history, it's great combining those ideas of, of mapping it out and following the geography and the timeline mm -hmm. while at the same time, asking yourself was croesus a good king did he live a happy life um was cyrus should cyrus have fought the massacre or should he have let them pass freely right that's a great lost tools essay right there <laughs> um you know so there's so much in here that you can wrestle with and you get both of those things you're getting real history real facts about ancient civilization and at the same time you're exercising this ability to uh you know to 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 reflect the 
the nature of humans that God gave us in creation, which is to take dominion, which in other words means to be, to exercise judgment. And so you get that in the lost tools, you start with level one, but then two and three, you know, you're, you're working on the judicial and then deliberative essay because it's, it's getting you closer to what a king does. And so it's actually kingly behavior to read about these kings and say, this one did things wrong. This one did things right. Or, you know, Solon was, you could say Solon was wrong. Happiness, you can know if somebody's happy before they're dead. I don't know. It's worth thinking about. So I would want to talk about those sorts of things in class with the students mm -hmm. um, and not just quiz them on, well, what date did, you know, Right, Gophlies make Gaiji's look at his wife in the bedroom, <laughs> yeah. or I don't know, I pick something random. Uh, but yeah, it's weird. You know, it's it's so much better than that. But I do love this idea of of mapping it out. And my edition, fortunately, has these helpful appendices. But you can get lost in. Oh my goodness, can't remember who's who and what's what and where's where. So I love this idea of each week adding a little land to a map on the blackboard or something or creating a list of you know which king sired whom and oh and going back to sorry i'm talking too much but going back to the question of who's a who's a tyrant and who's a despot and who's a you know a good king or mm. bad king those yeah. would be fun questions to go through as you each king you you encounter yeah, those are other good normative questions, right? Other ways of like framing that. I mean, there's the should question, which you brought up, but that framing of which ones are good kings, which ones are tyrants is another way of, uh, they got to, then they got to start comparing them, right? And defending why one is good versus one another. And you're making these comparisons between people and choices and in a way that are, I think is really fruitful for a student to, to have to think through. That's good. All right. Well, we have been uh, wandering around these questions for a while. I I just wanted to close out, um, you know, with any thoughts about if you were going forward, what would you be looking for in book two or in the rest of the book? What kind of things would you want to keep paying attention to based on what you saw in book one? Um, maybe that'll help us set up the future episodes, but also help folks who are going to continue on or who are doing this um, with their students in the next year. So any thoughts about that? I, th I think Herodotus is, is setting us up with that question from Solon, who is the happiest and most prosperous of all. So definitely continue to look at that one throughout. And with his lens of um, the accounts, right, of he's trying to mention all the human events so that they don't fade, right? That's the very beginning that he says, um, the great and wonderful deeds that they not go unsung and the causes that led them to make war on each other. Right. So looking at the, the deeds, how they're wonderful, maybe how they're not so wonderful. <laughs> those to imitate and those not to imitate. And what, what caused that, right? How, how have our nations, you know, how did we get to where we are today? Right. All these ancient nations came and, you know, we, some things we got rid of, for good reasons, right? And some we've we've kept. Um, so looking at that and how we've shaped as humans. Um, how Croesus dies. Hopefully Herodotus tells us that. 
Yeah, that seems like a big question out there since he's kind of the impetus for this so long question. Those and two he's kind, kind of, of responsible for Cyrus's death, at least yeah. according to this version of the story. Yeah. So those two things, both of y'all's things go hand in hand, I think, a lot in a lot of ways. So, well, thank you both. Uh, this has been fun. This is, I think, as a first dive into Herodotus for both Patty and I, I think, like you said, it'd been a long time and maybe in pieces. So this is a good, good time talking about this. Yeah, thank you. This is a blast. Um, it's one of those books I think that's tough to read. Tough to be like, yeah, I'm going to sit down and read Herodotus right now. <laughs> Right. Um, but once you do, it's so enjoyable and man, I just love these hearing about these ancient peoples and their customs. It's pretty enlightening. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to keep going. So hopefully if you have another one on Herodotus. You'll invite me back. All right. <laughs> well, uh, thank you everybody for listening and pulling it down and, uh, getting into Herodotus with us. Um, we, like I mentioned, we'll be taking off uh, the rest of the July. Uh, the plan is to come back in August, early to mid-August, with um, episodes uh, on the Oresteia, which is another kind of three-play cycle from ancient Greece. Um, we'll do it similar to how we did the um, Oedipus cycle. We'll do kind of one play a week, and then a Q&A to follow up on all three. And I mentioned him earlier, but uh, we are hoping and excited to have uh, Brian Phillips come back and join us. Uh, if you've been around Cersei a long time, you know he was with Cersei for a very long time or for several years. Um, used to host the the conferences uh, as our MC and and has had several podcasts on this network over the years, um, his own and been part of some of the collaborative ones. And so he is going to come back and join us um, and. We are still working on who the third is going to be, but we look forward to that podcast uh, or that set of that series of podcasts coming up in August. So we hope you come back and join us as we head back into the school year uh, with the Oresteia. Um, you can also send any questions or comments between now and then to podcast at Cersei and you can check out the other shows on the Cersei podcast network. <laughs>